Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jericho Brown, James Allen Hall, Yona Harvey, Paisley Rechtdahl, and Richard Sykin. You will now hear James Allen Hall provide introductions. If I could first ask you all to please turn these things off, all of your boop, boop, beep, beep things, that would be good. Thank you. That way we don't, we don't have any disruptions. So this panel sort of came together and has a history, I think, at AWP that perhaps Professor Rechtal might want to talk about a little bit. You're like always on this panel. Well, I'm glad that this panel always happens. We are talking about figures who are masterful, from whom we can learn something about our craft, but also the shape of neglect and the the ways that we can heal neglect as writers and teachers and people who produce discourse uh, as well as poems. What I would like to do is to introduce our panelists, and then they will address you in alphabetical order. Jericho Brown, to my left, is the recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University and the National Endowment for the Arts. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. his poems have appeared in The New Republic, The New Yorker, anything new, The Best American Poetry. His first book, Please, New Issues 2008, won the American Book Award, and his second book, The New Testament, Copper Canyon, uh, won the Ainsfield Wolf Book Award just recently and was named one of the best books of the year by library journal Cold Front in the Academy of American Poets and Anyone with Eyes. He is an associate professor in English and creative writing at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Yona Harvey, to my right, is the author of the, of the poetry collection Hemming the Water, winner of the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, Claremont Graduate University. She is an assistant professor of English and Fabulosity at the University of Pittsburgh. Paisley Rechtal is the author of a book of essays, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee. I recommend it to all of you as well as to my students all the time. A hybrid genre of photo text memoir that combines poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and photography entitled Intimate and four books of poetry, A Crash of Rhinos, Six Girls Without Pants, The Invention of the Kaleidoscope, and Animal Eye, which was a finalist for the 2013 Kingsley Tufts Prize, the Balcones Prize, and winner of the Wilco Prize from the University of North Texas. Her work has received the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, an NEA Fellowship, two Pushcart Prizes, a Fulbright Fellowship, and various State Arts Council Awards. Her newest book, Imaginary Vessels, is forthcoming from Copper Canyon in 2016, so we can look forward to that. Richard Sykin, at the end here, is the author of Crush, which was the 2004 winner of this little prize called the Yale series of younger poets. His second book, War of the Foxes, is just out from Copper Canyon Press. He is the recipient of an NEA fellowship and two Arizona Commissions of the Arts grants. Sykin is an editor at Spork Press. I will now turn the podium over to Jericho Brown. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. Uh, thank you for this idea and for inviting me to participate in it. Uh, and it's really an honor to be on this panel with these poets whose work I admire so deeply and so greatly. I gave a handout. I don't know if everyone got it. I brought maybe 50. We might be above 50. So if you can get next to a person who has a handout, if you don't have one, you know, everybody doesn't stink. You don't have to be afraid. I know y'all are writers, so you, that's your excuse for pretending uh, social anxiety. But uh, it would be of use to me because I'll refer to it in the second half of what I'm going to say, and I don't want you looking like I don't know what he's talking about and I don't care because we don't want to keep people neglected. And I gave the handout out also because I wanted you to have these poems because my hope is that you will take these poems with you elsewhere and make use of them, you know, post them and teach them and, and do things because I'm, I'm sort of, I'm in love with them. I'm not sort of in love with them. So I guess I'll start running my mouth. A couple of weeks ago, in what I am sure was an act of irony, 
The poem a day administered by poets.org featured a piece that made me laugh out loud when I opened my email. The title, A Minor Poet. The Poet, Stephen Vincent Benet. I didn't finish the poem that day. Too many obvious adjectives and too many unnecessary modifiers for my taste. Being reminded of Benet's existence did make me think about my plans for this panel, though. A minor poet was first collected in Benet's early, if not first, full-length book, Young Adventure, for which he won the 1917 Yale Prize before it was, a few years later, changed to the Yale Younger Prize. I imagine the poem was a kind of self-conscious testimony from a poet who was only 20 years old and unsure of his future as a writer. After this acclaim, though, he would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for his book-length poem, John Brown's Body, and to become the judge for the Yale Younger, selecting first books by poets including Paul Engel, Muriel Ruckeiser, and Margaret Walker. He was elected a fellow to the Academy of Arts and Sciences and won a second Pulitzer posthumously in 1944. He had died less than a year before this announcement. I'm not sure what this list of commendations meant for a poet of Benet's time, especially since they were all much newer recognitions and therefore maybe not as prestigious as they would come to be considered a few decades later. To be completely honest, I'm not at all sure what we collectively think of these honors today that we being the men and women in this very room, who are writers on the ground obsessed with every keystroke and not with pats on the back from the right hands. As a descendant of black people, and in so many ways of the black arts movement, my own ambivalence about mainstream modes of acknowledgement always comes in the form of the way I'm supposed to feel versus the way I feel versus the way Kalamu Yasalam and Mona Lisa Saloy might feel about me versus authentic gratitude versus the fact that Phyllis Wheatley can join Dickinson and Whitman in saying she never won a prize. Given all of this, though, I'd like to think that Benet met his death with the assurance that people loved his work and it would continue to be read widely for lifetimes to come. I hope everyone in this room dies with such assurance, whether or not it turns out to be true. In Benet's case, it doesn't seem to have manifested. Certainly, he must not have imagined my black queer ass giving cruel and haughty glance at his minor poet. As a matter of fact, this is the first time I've ever caught myself saying his name to other writers, and I'm 100% sure I've never heard another writer say his name to me. It seems that Benet died in the shadow of too many modernist greats we'd rather read whether or not we understand their fragmentation, their subversive use of form, or their heavy use of illusion. I say all of that to say, that I'm worried I might be here for the wrong reasons. People have had the nerve to ask me in public interviews how it feels to not be considered for this or that prize and how it feels to be a finalist who walks out of the ceremony holding nothing but the printed program. <laughs> I've been asked enough to have an answer at the ready. And here it is. Quote, Poetry is not about how many prizes you win, and it's not even about how many people buy your books. Poetry is about how much space any one poem holds in any human heart. End quote. That is the answer, but I know it can sound a little too good to be true. Still, if that is my answer, is there really any such thing as a neglected American master? If I know that, besides the Bible, 
one of the biggest influences for my second book, The New Testament, was Bob Kaufman's Golden Sardine. What then are my motives for trying to get more people to read and teach and know and learn the work of Bob Kaufman? Hasn't he done the work he needs to do in my individual human heart if I know that my work exists because his work exists? And if I know that his work helps me to better see this world in ways distorted enough for me to see it real? Or am I talking about Kaufman today because I don't really believe my answer? Do I actually and more subconsciously think of him as a doomed figure, a figure always in need of saving? And if I do, do I think of him this way because he was black, because he was born in the South, because he was Buddhist, because he chose to be a performer of his work who often refused to write the words down for an establishment that to this very day respects the written word over the spoken word. Because he took a 10-year vow of silence, beginning with the assassination of President Kennedy and ending with U.S. troops finally pulling out of the Vietnam War. Do I wish he was less righteous and more vocal during these years of intensity in American history? Do I call Kaufman neglected because I blame him for being exactly who he meant to be? Of Kaufman's intentions for himself, Harriet Mullen has said, quote, he very deliberately chose a marginal life rather than having marginality imposed on him. Kaufman declared and dedicated himself to what I call the antithesis of a literary career, end quote. And Ken Kesey's first memory of Kaufman seems an example of this marginal antithesis. Kesey says, I can remember, quote, I can remember driving down to North Beach with my folks and seeing Bob Kaufman out there on the street. He had little pieces of Band-Aid tape all over his face, about two inches wide and little smaller ones, like two inches long, and all of them made into crosses. He would come up to the cars and he was babbling poetry into these cars. He came up to the car I was riding in with my parents and started jabbering this stuff into the car. I knew that this was exceptional use of the human voice and the human mind, end quote. The terror that his poems incite in me is real, but sometimes eclipsed by the terror of what I know of the poet. Yes, he lost England's Guinness Poetry Award to Eliot. Yes, he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson a few times in the early 70s. Yes, he coined the term beatnik and was a, a co-founding editor of Beatitude magazine, which I always wonder if I should say Beatitude magazine. Yes to what I know his poems have done in my human heart. Still, I am fool enough to ask myself, if there seems little place other than the occasional ironic poem a day feature for what came of the literary life led by Stephen Vincent Benet, and how can we ever do anything other than neglect the work that came out of the life of the purposefully antithetically marginal Bob Kaufman? And ultimately, aren't my questions about Kaufman really just questions that come from my own ego? Questions asked by a younger poet who has had recognition enough to share this panel with these brilliant poets. Are my worries about Kaufman, one of my greatest influences, really just cover-ups for my worries about myself and my own death? Kaufman is often forgotten as the important figure he was to the beat generation because he was black. He is often forgotten as a black poet during the black arts movement 
because he was so decidedly a proponent of the beat generation. And maybe this leads to what I love most about his poems. Kaufman's work could easily be called psychedelic because of his use of surreal imagery. For example, in A Terror is More Certain, I confess to all the crimes committed in the month of April, but not to save my own neck, which is adjustable and telescopes into any size noose. Or in Michelangelo, the elder, in one ear a spider spins its web of eyes, in the other a cricket chirps all night. This is what we often hear about Kaufman's poetry, this and its improvisational nature, a quality of playful humor that makes it seem as if the poems write themselves as lyrics to a score of jazz playing in Kaufman's head. For example, in October 5th, 1963, arriving back in San Francisco to be greeted by a blacklist and eviction, I am writing these lines to the responsible non-people. One thing is certain, I am not white. Thank God for that. It makes everything else bearable. <laughs> so funny. The loneliness of the long-distance runner is due to the onlyness of the long-distance runner, that uniqueness that is the long-distance runner's alone and only his. The loneliness of the long-distance runner is the only reason for the long-distance runner's existence. Short-distance runners run. They finish neither first nor last. They finish. That is all that can be said about them. Nothing can be said for them, an ordinariness that is their closest proximity to the truly unique. Men die, as all men come to know, sooner or later, at any rate, either way, men die. On that, all men can depend. Kaufman's surreal nature and improvisational genius are enough to make him a poet to love. But for me, he's an American master because these are only tools he uses in poems meant to make present a persona who falls through the cracks of identity that America forces upon all of us. This is what I miss in the poetry of Stephen Vincent Benet. This is what I want from the poetry of Jericho Brown. Trouble is that Bob Kaufman is an American master because he is neglected. Kaufman's iconoclastic nature is his greatest gift as it becomes the basis for a speaker caught in dire circumstances at the beginnings and endings of almost every one of his poems. A terror is more certain begins a terror is more certain than all the rare, desirable, popular songs I know and ends. Who wants to be a poet if you fuck on TV and all those cowboys watching? Michelangelo the Elder begins, I live alone like pith in a tree and ends, I would die for poetry. Slight alterations begins, I climb a red thread to an unseen existence and ends. The floor is a plate. Mm. The floor is a palette of surprise watching me eat the calendar. And October 5th, 1963, which I've already quoted the beginning of, ends. It comes before and after every beat. You hear it in between. Its sound is Bob Kaufman, poet. Thank you. I would only fuck on TV if cowboys were watching. <laughs> No, it's cool. No, you're fine. It's good. Yeah. Something happened to Gwendolyn Brooks 
Tony Cade Bambara wrote in the New York Times book review, uh, something most certainly in evidence in, in the Mecca and subsequent works, a new movement and energy, intensity, richness, power of statement, and a new stripped, lean, compressed style, a change of style prompted by a change of mind. This was after she attended the second Black Writers Conference at Fisk University in 1967. By that time, she'd published with Harper and Rowe um, all of her books, including the first one, A Street in Bronzeville, which um, led to a Guggenheim. Um, her second book, Annie Allen, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1959, or 1950, rather. In 1969, she was nominated for a National Book Award uh, for In the Mecca, which was the last book she published with Harper and Rowe. Afterwards, Brooks left Harper and began publishing with Broadside Press, one of several new publishing houses with the purpose of promoting black writers. Brooks told an interviewer that she was interested in joining a house that, quote, was giving a platform to young black poets, people that the larger publishers wouldn't accept. In another interview, Brooks said, quote, my aim is to write poems that will somehow successfully call all black people. I set out in this talk to understand why it is that I finished my BA, my MFA, and my PhD only knowing one poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. That is not to say that I did not encounter other poets of color, but I can't remember a single time after high school that I was taught a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. And I took a lot of classes, y'all. Did that mean she had nothing to teach me? Did that mean I was no better than Wallace Stevens, who, upon seeing a photograph of Brooks among portraits of past National Book Award judges, remarked to his other judges, who's the coon? Apparently, in the story relayed by the biographer Joan Richardson, when Stevens noticed the reaction to his words, which was, I think, the reaction in that room that we've just had, um, he repeated it. I know you don't like to hear a lady called a coon, but who is it? This was at the 1952 National Book Awards luncheon. Brooks had won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry the year prior. There's no fucking way he didn't know who she was. <laughs> he didn't win a Pulitzer Prize until 1955. So the first time I studied Wallace Stevens, I didn't like him. Impenetrable, dry, hyper-cerebral, like most Libras. <laughs> I'm a Libra, too. I remember a creative writing class in which we were given his 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. I remember a creative writing class which assigned an imitation of anecdote of the jar. I remember a creative writing class in which the professor lectured on man with a blue guitar. I remember being assigned him in both my advanced degree programs um, as well as my, my undergrad program. Finally, I got it. Stevens was a poet with a capital white. No program ever introduced me to the poet who, as Elizabeth Alexander has said, combines tensile strength of the line with strange diction that could belong to no one else and sophisticated musical ability that can rhyme Banshee gets with vinaigrettes. Isn't that amazing? Elizabeth Alexander writes of discovering Gwendolyn Brooks, quote, if such wild and unexpected curiosities were possible in her language, then anything might be possible for me. Gwendolyn Brooks's mastery is of the line, tensile strength, I just wanted to say that again, and its ability to modulate tone and syntax, I have a little handout. I'm just going to refer to it um, a little bit. Um, Abortions will not let you forget Brooks writes to begin her poem, The Mother, in her first book, A Street in Bronzeville. It's an unforgettable poem, one of sophisticated music that governs an even more sophisticated use of tone and line. If you look at the end, there's that really long last line that exhausts all of your breath, and then that one word on the next line, as you're taking a breath, you take in all like as that mother does. It leads us into a huge quiet, and it's that interplay between the long and the short line at the end which creates echo and subverts our expectations. 
Clearly, this is a poet with much to teach us, with much to emulate, and yet, preparing for this panel, I looked at descriptions of courses offered at Harvard for the past 10 years. Brooks was found in descriptions for modern American poetry, a course which also included Stevens, and in contemporary African-American literature. Stevens was found in classes that bore his very name, Stevens and Pound, Stevens, Plath and Lowell, and the graduate seminar, Just Stevens. <laughs> Other classes that listed him, Poetry in America, a fascinating class called Ode, Elegy, Epigram, Fragment, Song, a course on the art of the essay, and a class in advanced poetry writing, which did not, in its description, include a single poet of color. Perhaps the inclusion of Stevens is just because was Stevens' chief critics and proponents taught until recently at Harvard, so it's, perhaps it's just the spirit of a pedagogue over the curriculum. But I found the same to be true of course descriptions at Yale, Duke, Dartmouth, Stanford, and UC Berkeley. I went a little West Coast there. Brooks was present in African-American literature classes, but her name did not seem to be called in the other classes. If her name is not written on the roster, if it is not called, can she be said to be absent? Then I decided to pull off my shelves a great number of books on poetry, a few anthologies of poetry, and about 30 essay compilations on the art and craft that we love. I've said that Brooks is as anthologized as Stevens, though Stevens often has slightly more pages, 20, for instance, in the modern American poetry anthology, as opposed to 13 for Brooks. But true amazement lay in looking at the indices of the books of essays that have supplemented and indeed been my education. I found two essays dedicated solely to Brooks, one by Carl Phillips, Gwendolyn Brooks as a metaphysical poet in Coin of the Realm, I recommend it to you, and one by Elizabeth Alexander, Elizabeth Alexander, both in separate books. Over and over again, though, I found poets touchstoning Wallace Stevens. Looking at a recent and good anthology of essays on line breaks, for instance, I saw that Brooks is mentioned by three poets total in that book, one in the introduction. Stevens is mentioned by seven. In sound and form in modern poetry, Stevens has 20 pages of reprints and analysis. Brooks is not mentioned at all. Actually, the only poet of color in that book is Langston Hughes, who has one reprinted poem. In the flexible lyric, one of my favorites, Stevens has two poems discussed Brooks, zero. The same is true for Stephen Dobbins's Best Words, Best Order, and Stanley Plumley's Argument and Song. Mary Rufel's recent book, Madness, Rack, and Honey, which I love, lists Stevens in its selected biography, but not Brooks. Mark Strand's 100 Great Poems of the 20th Century includes Stevens, but not Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks never appeared in a single volume of the best American poetry nor did she edit that series from the time it first appeared in 1988 until her, dead, her death in 2000. Only in, po in places like The Poet's Companion, edited by Kim Adnizio and Dorian Lux, and in By Herself, Women Reclaim Poetry, do you see the results reversed. Stevens not mentioned, Brooks well represented. I love that book, by the way, By Herself, Women Reclaim Poetry. It's an excellent um, craft anthology. Over the years, this conference, in fact, has seen an avalanche of panels and presentations that have centered on Stevens, though there are a few Brooks panels, like the one yesterday. Um, it isn't the same steady stream. I have endeavored to outline the ways in which neglect happens in classrooms, in essays on our art, in anthologies, at conferences. All of this forms and informs the force of the educational canon that has relegated Miss Brooks to one relatively early poem. And though it is a masterful poem, We Real Cool would not be the representative I'd pick of her poems. There are poems like her sonnet sequence, Gay Chaps at the Bar, or her Infirm that we need especially in this moment. Brooks teaches us how to write with history, to organize through form that which is unspeakable. I turn my final attention to The Boy Died in My Alley, a poem I have given many a student in the wake of Mike Brown's murder in Ferguson and Tamir Rice's murder in Cleveland. There's so much to teach in that poem. The way that the shots I hear and shots I hear prefigure the red floor of my alley, which becomes a special speech to me at the end of the poem. 
It teaches me how to be at once both stranger and more precise in my descriptions. Stretch strain at the end of the, of the poem is so heartbreaking because it physicalizes the straining for salvation and yet calls back to the future fall. And it also prefigures the red floor, the strain that becomes stain in what is for Brooks a kind of echo so obvious she need not make it in order for it to haunt and inhabit the poem. The boy died in my alley teaches me that point of view can be manipulated in order to bring the world outside our door, the boy who died, into the personal, into my alley. Gwendolyn Brooks is an American master whose neglect has been at the hands of classrooms, poets, and writers who have punished her for turning her back on mainstream publication and seeking a black audience, as if that black audience isn't also a part of what we mean when we say American poetry. She shows us that poetry is a special speech that can, as she says in the closing line of the first sonnet, Gay Chaps of the Bar, holler down the lions in this air. Thank you. Hello. I'm going to talk a little bit about Sterling Brown. Last spring, Jericho and I were on a panel together, and at one point he said something like, poets need to stop apologizing for being poets. And at the time, I was like, hmm, what does he mean by that? And I've been thinking on it and thinking on it, and that's how I came to want to talk about Sterling Brown. I was first introduced to Sterling Brown's poetry as an undergraduate student at Howard University. I was enrolled in a required course, Blacks in the Arts, which, as you might imagine, covered quite a bit of territory. Um, dance, theater, fine arts, literature, music, it seemed like everything, and also over a long period of time, like from slave narratives to the then present. Um, the class was team taught by two professors in the College of Fine Arts, and the two, two women typically stood at the front of a large auditorium, not quite as large as this, and, and uh, enriched the day's lessons by sharing recordings on an old record player. So that was a while back. The recording I recall most vividly is the one of Brown's booming voice reciting his poem, Old Limb. Hearing the poet's voice for the first time was an experience very much like the one Sterling Stuckey describes in his introduction to the collected poems of Sterling A. Brown, which Michael S. Harper selected as a National Poetry Series winner in 1980. Quote, it was a weekend in the summer of 62 at a resort near Detroit just on the other side of the Canadian border. We were listening to a recording being amplified throughout the grounds of poets reading their words. Just standing at that early hour on a Sunday morning would have been, under most circumstances, an achievement. But this time, I was startled upright and determined to get to the record player to discover whose voice it was. I wondered then and later how a Williams College Phi Beta Kappa, a Harvard man, a college professor, and eminent writer could have a voice with so much of earth and sky and sunlight and dark clouds about it, a voice unafraid, an instrument blues-tinged, end quote. Of course, I was listening from the back seat of a university auditorium rather than a resort, but, blue, but Brown's blues-tinged instrument firmly fixed itself in my imagination. Though my blues education was just budding at that time, I could already hear the winks, nods, and repetitions of that music. What strikes me now is the fact that I can't recall under which art my professors had housed Brown's poetry. Had we been discussing the blues as 
strictly music, or had we been discussing literature and poetry informed by the blues? The, the exact answer is not really the point. To me, it's the idea that Brown's intellectual and creative work were so intricately tied to the blues. The two could not be separated. I love the blues. I love jazz, Brown once said, and I'm not going to give them up. Writing about Brown's work many years later, the late poet and scholar Lorenzo Thomas observed that, quote, every poet must confront a serious problem, how to reconcile one's private preoccupations with the need to make poetry that is both accessible and useful to others. A failure in this area does not, of course, prevent the production of these poems. Indeed, some poems, like many of T.S. Eliot's, may be records of this struggle, end quote. Thomas goes on to note that Eliot cringed before a weighty past, but that Brown, enamored with the blues and the African-American vernacular tradition, perceived an originality and creativity to be mastered and practiced in an even more original manner. And I suspect this is why when we revisit reviews and scholarship about Brown's work, words like innovative and experimental tend to crop up. Brown also had a really sharp sense of humor, which is evident in his lectures, essays, and critical reviews. He's got a really great one called um, Imitation of Life, Once a Pancake. I mean, it's like it will have you in stitches. It's so, it's so good. Brown was on a mission to analyze and dispel stereotypes about African Americans, and the blues format was one of his best tools. As a poet, I'm drawn to Brown's variations of the form, which Lorenzo Thomas describes beautifully in his essay, Authenticity and Elevation, Sterling Brown's Theory of the Blues. Um, you can hear that innovation in the witnessing, cataloging, and echoes of old limb. And I'm going to read that poem. There's a great recording of Sterling Brown that's uh, the Smithsonian Institution released. You should hear that too. I can't read it as well as he does, but I'm going to take this moment to read it to you. I talked to Lim, and old Lim said, they weigh the cotton. They store the corn. We only good enough to work the rows. They run the commissary. They keep the books. We got to be grateful for being cheated. Whippersnapper clerks call us out of our name. We got to say Mr. to spindling boys. They make our figures turn somersets. We buck in the middle, say thank you, sir. They don't come by ones. They don't come by twos. They come by tens. They got the judges. They got the lawyers. They got the jury rolls. They got the law. They don't come by ones. They got the sheriffs. They got the deputies. They don't come by twos. They got the shotguns. They got the rope. We get the justice in the end. And they come by tens. Their fists stay closed, their eyes look straight, our hands stay open, our eyes must fall. They don't come by ones. They got the manhood, they got the courage, they don't come by twos. We got to slink around, hang-tailed hounds. They burn us when we dogs, they burn us when we men, they come by tens. I had a buddy, six foot of a man, muscled up perfect, game to the heart. They don't come by ones. Outworked and outfought, any man or two men, they don't come by twos. He spoke out of turn at the commissary. They gave him a day to get out the county. He didn't take it. He said, come and get me. They came and got him, and they came by tens. He stayed in the county. He lays there dead. They don't come by ones. They don't come by twos, but they come by tens. 
grateful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So that uh, brings me finally to the notion of neglect and indebtedness. Not that long before Lorenzo Thomas passed away, he was on an AWP panel that was actually devoted to uh, Sterling Brown's work and implementing it in the D.C. public schools. And um, after that panel, he was so patient and kind, and he worked with me to let me get my hands on that curriculum and see that work that they were doing. Um, So I really want to plug him and his book and make sure that you read his essays and also acknowledge Joanne Gabin's work, Stephen Henderson, and Mark Sanders um, for their attention to Brown's work over the years. I guess, like, in Brown's case, I feel... The work is there, but we need to be reminded of it and to share it and to teach it. Just as recently as yesterday, I ran into Ahmad Jamal Johnson and Brian Gilmore, who is also working on a what I know is going to be a really great lecture about uh, the reception of Sterling Brown's 1932 book, The Southern Road. And I don't know if he, don't tell him that I'm giving this away, but He talks about how there's this really great uh, review in the New York Times of the Southern Road, and then there's a not-so-great one by by Poetry Magazine, and so he's talking, he's comparing that. That's going to be so good. He's going to deliver that in D.C. Anyway, (laughs) to some of us, Sterling Brown has always been a part of the discussion, But even Sterling Stuckley, in the introduction to Brown's collected works, noted that in 1962, even though Brown was and had been a professor at Howard University for several years, he wasn't sure that the Negro literati at Howard and other schools had any real sense of why Brown and his work were so important. So I hope as a result of this panel, some of you might like explore the rich body of his work, and especially those recordings, and teach them. If you want anything, if you need anything, you can ask me. I have it all. Thank you. So I'm going to be talking about uh, The Book of the Dead by Muriel Rukeyser. What's interesting to me as I'm listening to these fabulous talks is how much the issue of blackness actually figures into loss and or recuperation, mostly loss. Those of you out there, most of you probably know about Muriel Rukeyser, and it's probably amusing for me to sort of talk about her as a neglected master, especially since The Book of the Dead, perhaps, is a poem that's come roaring back to life in the last several years. And I'm going to be talking about sort of the reasons, both good and bad, that it disappeared critically for a while, and the reasons, um, mostly good and somewhat interesting, that, <laughs> that it's come back. At the time she was writing the work that would become The Book of the Dead, which was published in uh, US 1 in 1938, you have to remember that T.S. Eliot was the reigning figure in poetry. And by reigning, I mean just that was the guy everyone had to wrestle with. And Rukeyser was one of these novice poets at the time who was wrestling with his influence. You also have to remember that at that time, she had her feet in two different art worlds. One was the world of poetry, and the other one was the world of what was then becoming documentary filmmaking. She herself started out as a journalist and as a filmmaker. And when she went down to Golly Bridge, down for the, to inter, you know, investigate the Hawk's Nest mining disaster, that's the capacity in which she was working. And itself, documentary film was a term in development. Um, At the point, directors and audiences were seeing um, film primarily as a narrative format, but they started to realize that, of course, as with photography, you know, it was possible to capture reality. And interestingly, at that time, 
there was a big shift in film over in England. John Grierson and the documentary film movement were sort of working on these films that would later be termed documentary films. And over in America, we had Robert Flaherty's romanticized Nanook of the North, which itself was based on Edward Sheriff Curtis's very doomed docudrama in the land of the headhunters. I dare you to go watch that. I start my talk on Rookeiser today with both Elliot and documentary filmmaking because I think they are, to some extent, two of the main reasons for the Book of the Dead's neglect and its recent recuperation. Rookeiser herself, as I said, you can't really sort of say she's neglected in some respects. Winner of the Yale Younger Poets Award, noted biographer, author of more than 12 books of poetry with two collected poems, you know, two collected volumes out in print. Hers is a name that probably most of us here are very familiar with. My own personal experience, though, is that she's a name that we're familiar with, but we're largely maybe not teaching. I certainly never was given any of her poems in all of my years in the classroom. Most people don't seem to be teaching um, her or talking about her from conversations and conferences like this. But if there is one, it is the Book of the Dead. For those of you guys who don't know about the the Hawks Nest mining disaster, it took place in the early 30s. It was one of the nation's worst industrial disasters, and it remains that way, in which a primarily African-American workforce contracted silicosis through inhaling rock dust that was um, contained in the silica dust while they were constructing a new hydroelectric power plant. It started getting national attention because Time Magazine and Newsweek were saying, hey, does anyone know about this? Silicosis, for those of you who don't know, is a disease, I had to look this up, that infects the lungs and gradually causes the cells of the body to digest themselves. The black workers, most of them were black, um, who basically contracted this disease were given $400 as remuneration for their suffering. White workers were given 1000 What a shock, right? By the late 1930s, so many news reports had trickled out about this disaster, and so poets and filmmakers were starting to go down and start to record the events. And when when Rukeyser went down, she went down as a journalist primarily. And uh, she created this epic poem, The Book of the Dead. Some of you may have read it. Maybe most of you have read it. And it is incredible. It contains... Uh, ballads, witness statements, doctor statements, NASDAQ stock quotes, congressional testimony, the language of maps or guidebooks, personal monologues, and blues songs. It is a long pro-workers' rights collage work, sequence in the tradition of both the modernists and the social realist writers of the 1920s. And it also takes its name from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, from whose lyrics she constantly sort of cribs and quotes. What you might not know, as I said, was that she came down as a photographer. And if you read the poems, the the camera takes a really central place in the text. And it's fascinating to see how it works. So, for instance, Golly Bridge is the first example of this. And I'm just going to read a couple of sections from it. Camera at the crossing sees the city. A street of wooden walls and empty windows, the doors shut handless in the empty street, and the deserted Negro standing on the corner. The man on the street and the camera eye, he leaves the doctor's office, slam door, doom. Any town looks like this one. Glass, wood, and naked eye, the movie house closed for the afternoon frames, posters, and the Negro watches it grow in the gray air. Eyes of the tourist house, the eyes of the Negro looking down the track, hotel man and hotel, cafeteria, camera. This poem and other poems in that sequence is filled with images of reflective glass, shop windows, eyes, and acts of looking. Um, All images shot explicitly either from a camera's point of view or, interestingly, the point of view of the African-American man on the corner. Rukeyser's rhetoric here is primarily visual. The poem, as well as others in the sequence, attempt to create a direct, stripped-down, technical, and objective gaze in this language. And if this is a poem meant to document tragedy, then the camera's, and it's not the poet's point of view, but the camera's point of view, suggests the greatest possibility for objectivity, as does the gaze of the, quote-unquote, deserted Negro, the ultimate witness to this tragedy that primarily claimed black lives. And in this poem, as in others in the Book of the Dead, the black gaze is the camera's gaze. And that's really important. It's the black gaze that matters. And if race is in part one of the things that is looked at in the poem, it is also the thing that looks back 
at us. So she explicitly frames this as the most objective gaze is the black gaze, which is, I think, a very unusual move to make in a poem, certainly that time and even now. So what does all this have to do with neglect? Um, for me, Rukeyser is a fascinating case study uh, in the cyclical values, I think, at work in our notions of mastery and excellence. When the Book of the Dead finds and creates a language that matches her essentially documentary impulse, I think this poem is superb. And it utilizes the modernist strategies at work at that time of multivocal collage, fragmentation, and even early imagism um, in ways that are specific to her project. And in that, I think it fulfills its impulse to create a panopticon through which to see and record events. And through seeing, to allow the reader to become part of a maybe passive, but certainly a part of a protest against a modern civilization built on the backs of mostly black exploited workers. Defense is sight, she writes. Widen the lens and see, standing over the land, myths of identity, new signals, processes. And yet I've taught this poem numbers of times. And what also strikes me about this is that that documentary language clashes very deeply and sadly not always convincingly with other kind of high modernist language. At times she sort of starts to slide into a kind of Eliot-like minstrelsy. This is a, a, a poem that's filled with also figurative and myth-laced language that also seems to be culled from the wasteland, in particular Eliot's section, The Burial of the Dead. And that is, to me, the crippling force behind the poem. Rukeyser's response to Eliot's mythic framework is revisionist. It deflates his invocation of cyclical uh, vegetation myths often. And yet her preoccupation with these very myths, her play upon Eliot's high modernist fantasy, I believe perverts the cycle's original impulse and makes it sound occasionally a little derivative. I'm going to read some sections from the poem that I think kind of show that a little bit. This is uh, from her sequence's opening poem, The Road. Past your tall city's influence, outside its body, traffic, penumbral crowds, our centers removed and strong, fighting for good reason. The roads will take you into your own country, gay, blank, rich faces wishing to add history to ballrooms, tradition to the first tea. The land is fierce here, steep, braced against snow. She starts to slide into a kind of Vatic language that culminates, I think, in the sequence's final poem, and it's the weakest one, in a way, The Book of the Dead, in which Rukeyser's stripped-down language swells suddenly and moves into a very highly symbolic register, reminiscent not only of Eliot, but H.D.'s These Walls Do Not Fall. Here's another section, Live Oak, The Hanging Moss, A World of Desert, The Dead, The Lava, and the Extreme Arisen Fountains of Life. The flourished land, peopled with watercourses to California, and the colored sea, sums of frontiers, and unmade borders of acts and poems, the brilliant scene between the seas, and standing this fact and this disease. Our times confirm us all. In the museum life, centuries of ambition yielded at last a fertilizing image, the Carthaginian stone, meaning a tall woman, carries in her two hands the book and cradled dove. On her two thighs, wings folded from the waist crossed to her feet, a pointed human crown. As in Eliot's poem, the modern city is a source of degeneration and decay, and Rukeyser often turns to private, mythic, or faux medieval symbolism, redolent again of the burial of the dead throughout her poem. The rose, the castle, and the spear, she writes in one section, or later, will the corpse you planted last year begin to sprout? Her poem is filled with stilted images, sometimes I should say, of a pastoral landscape perverted by or changed to images of decay amid cycles of death and rebirth. The landscape itself devolves over the course of the sequence into a modernist hell that brings only death to those who that inhabit it. Interestingly, also, the scene in which all of this takes place, her long sequence, is April, the cruelest month. Um, so when we talk about the reasons, I think, that the Book of the Dead was neglected for a period of time, I think there are really good and bad reasons for that. And it's sort of interestingly, ironically flipped. I think when it was first published... It received a lot of acclaim, and partly because of the echoes of Eliot that people found sort of reassuring and, and you know, a mark of high culture. Now, however, I think it's flipped. It's not the mark of Eliot that makes it 
really quite the astonishing poem. It's her own language. It's that documentary impulse behind the poem. But there's another thing I think at work that goes unacknowledged, or maybe should has been acknowledged, and that's the political scene of American culture itself. Uh, I don't know how many of you felt in your workshops that politics was not to enter a poem upon pain of death, but I was one of that generation um, in which if you brought something up as you know, unseemly as race or politics or anything that could be seen as racial politics or politics at all, like that was just like the worst thing ever. Thanks, Michigan. It took me years to unlearn that. But there's a really strong reason, there's a historical reason that that happened. And you have to think about, if you look at the 20th century in American poetry and you look at what was coming out in the teens, the 20s, and 30s, you would be shocked to see how many of the popular voices were, you know, especially with the social realist writers, under Mike Gold and, you know, the proletarian poets, Tilly Olson, H.T. Tang, all these people who are writing these very firebrand kind of lyrics. People, you know, the, communism at that time wasn't necessarily a popular stance, but it was a viable political stance. And then World War II, the end of World War II, anti-communist fervor, a real sort of, um, you know, that slides into the Eisenhower era. We get this Cold War politics that sort of settles into an over-American culture in which people see publicly artists, actors, politicians, you know, people that they can admire and look up to being hauled before national courts and, you know, questioned as to their loyalty. And I don't think it's a surprise then to imagine that American poetry kind of goes a little underground. It's not as if they erase the political, because at the time that you know Eisenhower and Cold War politics are really sort of taking hold of poetry, we still have the confessionals and the beats writing, you know, and a lot of them are writing extraordinarily open lyrics about this. But I would argue that the American mainstream poetry and the conservative college classroom turned to poetry that masked its political rhetoric in highly figurative language. And if you want evidence of that, just read the Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, I think for about two decades, and you know, read the work of Unterberg. And you know, if you compare some of that work with some of the writing that's coming out in the 1920s, what you'll find is that it's not that the the politics themselves have changed dramatically; it's the rhetoric that cloaks those political sentiments. Um, and you move from something that is extraordinarily direct, extraordinarily open about its um, political ambitions to something that, you know, moves into these highly private symbol symbolic kinds of registers, symbolist registers. Rookheiser, I think, fell victim to this. Rookheiser started out her career speaking on and writing on issues ranging from the Scottsboro case, feminism, and later on, American aggression in Vietnam. She was very vocally active, and I think it was this vocal activism that earned her the ire of both the left and the right in the U.S. And though her feminist writings briefly got her some more attention in the 1970s, I think the general mode of what was considered and promoted as good poetry in American classrooms and rewarded with the major literary prizes largely shied away from the kind of stolid, unironic, and and firebrand rhetoric that would have characterized her early work and certainly the work of the writers that were really influencing her. So I, we, we could sort of say that, you know, all of this, the turning away in general in American cultural life from discussions of overt politics in art, I think, also took, uh, you know, this wind out of the sails of some of her later writing, um, with the result that by the late 80s and all through the 90s, it would not be uncommon for, like I said, my writing workshop or a classroom large, openly to eschew political writing and Rukeyser's Book of the Dead become one of those poems that slowly sinks from view. So these are a couple of the things that I think are at play with her and the neglect and what's interesting is I think the recuperation largely comes from the fact that there are so many different groups of people now interested in what we would consider documentary poetic practice. And it spans across the conceptual groups, experimental, avant-garde, to even narrative poetry groups now. There's a number of us that are working in this kind of practice. I always hate the idea that poems, if they do not speak to the current climate, must have the happy luck of responding to another's to be preserved, because that's one hell of a that's one hell of a hope to hold out. Um, but I go, again, I think we are all aware of the ways in which, say, someone like Elizabeth Bishop, her stock has risen, fallen, risen, fallen, risen again, and I think that really does speak more to us than it does to Elizabeth Bishop. I would not necessarily say that Rukeyser is going to become another Elizabeth Bishop. I think that it would be simplistic to dismiss 
Our neglect of certain writers out of hand is just generational narcissism. Unless it means something to me now, it has absolutely no value. I think there are good reasons that you know we could consider the flaws, and I think it's important to consider the flaws of a neglected master as well. Because one question might be, what is what? When we ask this question about what is originality, what is it that makes something survive? We have to be able to and be willing to be honest about what is it that makes a poem fail. I find failure more interesting than success in that sense. I would also say that I think we are at a great time where if we think about maybe we only discover, quote-unquote, what speaks to our current aesthetic, we are living in a moment in which one might say that there is no current aesthetic. There is no us. Poetry and publishing opportunities for poetry have exploded. I don't know about you, but it is impossible to track all of the different things that are going on all the different times, and I think that that's actually exciting, and it means the possibility for the recuperation, the rediscovery of more and more poets out there, because, of course, if the primary impulse is to find people like us back through history to trace our own lineage, then the more us there are, <laughs> the more neglected masters we will find. So in that sense, I think we might see Rukeyser's The Book of the Dead and its cycle of death and rebirth that she wrote about applies not only to the life of her poetic sequence, but um, possibly to the work of many more poets to come. Thank you. Hi. I don't teach, and my critical language is weak. So I'm coming at this from another way. Also, I am selfish and vain. <laughs> so, of course, it was about me, and who did I neglect? And I thought that was an interesting question, because I made my own canon, as we all make our own canons. And I guess it's okay to drop a poet out of your canon if your poet doesn't work for you. But why do you drop a poet out of your canon that really works for you? And that's where my head was when I came to this. Um, I don't know who I am. I've never known who I am. I write to try and find out who I am, and when I nail it down, I move on, and I'm someone else. Um, it has some unfortunate implications for my friends, not knowing who I am. It has some unfortunate implications implications for how I present myself and the politics of that. Ten years ago, I published a book that was very, very gay. This year, I published a book that's very, very straight, and I don't know what to do about that. I'm having trouble locating myself. Last time I was on a panel, it was about the overlap between being gay and being Jewish, and now I'm not addressing either of those. So I wanted to think, when I was successful about locating myself, when I was in graduate school, it seemed that there was this dichotomy between being confessional or being a language poet. And I was really excited about language poetry because it was electric and pyrotechnic and doing some really interesting things. But I also had things to say. But when I said them, they sounded nostalgic, sappy, limited. And I came across Leslie Scalpino, who somehow managed to put the lyric I, the first person singular, in the mix of language poetry. And this was really exciting for me because I, it seemed like I had solved something. It seemed like I'd found a way to use myself, and that was important to me. That was the draw of confessional poetry. But I found a way to use myself and move it around in the world in, in a way that was more interesting than why doesn't he love me back, which is what I ended up writing anyway. But at least, <laughs> at least I was encouraged to stray from that. And when I forget about Leslie Scalapino, oh, I get nostalgic and sappy, and it's just, why won't he love me back? And I bore myself. Um, I don't know how she does it, and I don't know why we don't remember her. I think we have to pick someone that stands for a school or a mode, and I think we picked Lynn Hagenian. 
And I don't think that was a bad choice. But if I get stuck, I go back to Scalapino. I don't go back to Hygienian. She has a book. Her first book was called Considering How Exaggerated Music Is. And right there in the title, there's something being pointed to or left out. There's a, there's a relationship that's being invoked but is incomplete. And then she has a book called That They Were at the Beach. And already you know it's, she's being coy and clever and exciting, but she's also being really intellectual, and it's, it might be difficult. And it is difficult because the way she makes sense of the world is picking a few verbs and nouns and just spinning them around and around. In that they were at the beach, there are mechanical birds. There is a girls' volleyball team that keeps getting creamed. There's a rented car. There's a landlady who comes up a lot. And the world is described by saying, so it's the landlady, or it's mechanical birds again. Or we were being creamed on the beach, so it's inverted and reversed. And to to start tagging the world as if saying, well, either it's the landlord, either it's the landlady or it's mechanical birds just kind of blew my mind. It was better than science fiction. And science fiction is a genre that's based on what is human. And when did it happen? I have more to ask than I, than I have to say. And what I would like to, to give you is, please look at your personal canon. Look at someone that might have been important and try and figure out if you dropped them and if it was a good reason to drop. I don't know what to call the time that I was coming into poetry or what to call the time we're in now. I know it was postmodern, and I was encouraged in grad school to join the post-postmodernists, <laughs> and I think we might have moved towards the metamodern. And what I understand about the metamodern is it allows you to be a language poet and a confessional poet. And Leslie Scalapino was doing this in the 70s. So... I think she's important for everyone. She's certainly important to me. And I think when we think of neglect, we should also think of our own responsibility to ourselves, not just our friends and not just the classroom and not just history. Because I think to some degree it's okay to be selfish and vain and look at what you dropped so you can make sure where you're going is where you want to. Thanks. I want to thank our panelists again, please. Um, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.